Hey everyone, make sure to watch The Ringer's new live Game of Thrones reaction show, Talk the Thrones. Each week, Andy Greenwald, Chris Ryan, Mother of Dragons Mallory Rubin, and our very own Maester. My other podcast co-host, Jason Concepcion, are coming to you live after the East Coast airing of Game of Thrones Season 7. Talk the Thrones will stream exclusively on Twitter and Periscope right after each episode ends and can be found on The Ringer's Twitter handle, at Ringer. Andy, Chris, Mallory, and Jason will be reacting at the same time as you, contextualizing the events and explaining explaining everything that just unfolded. Again, the show is called Talk the Thrones, and you can stream it live after the East Coast airing of Game of Thrones Season 7 on our Twitter and Periscope at Ringer. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com and also part of the Ringer Network. My fellow writer, my co-host, Michael Bauman. Hello, sir. Hey, Ben. Hello. We have some uh, religious news, I guess. I don't don't know if it's religious or not, but since last we talked, the Astros buried Carlos Beltran's glove because at the time it had been more than two months since he had played the field. And of course, you know, mere days after that, Carlos Beltran starts in left field. So, (laughs) you know jokes only last so long but they went all out i was in the the clubhouse right before this happened and like there was a little bit of a buzz and everybody was wearing black undershirts and i'm thinking i don't remember them having black undershirts and black obviously isn't part of their color scheme and then pictures start hitting the internet of brian mccann wearing priest robes uh, you Mm -hmm. know with his arms extended looking like i don't know uh, how many of the listeners out there also listen to hardcore history but uh (laughs) he looks like what i imagine jan matthias the apocalypse Apocalyptic monster Anabaptist preacher from the Prophets of Doom episode of that podcast looked like it was anyway. I thought this was legitimately funny. And yeah. like there's a like we great athletes, funny athletes on a scale. And people talk about, oh, how great this guy's personality is or how clever he is. And the truth is, like, these guys are aren't athletes, you know, they were the jocks, you know? Mm-hmm. And you know, some jocks are funny, but most jocks aren't funny. Even funny jocks aren't aren't that funny. So, you know, what I the question that I pose to you is this actually funny or is this athlete funny right yeah if, if you're a star athlete you don't have to be funny it's yeah. a bonus if you are but often with people who are funny they will say that they became funny because they had to they had to do something to stand out so yeah I, I don't think the caliber of humor is high among major league players but i agree with you this was legitimately funny and mccann who had a reputation for being the fun police years ago is now doing his best to it seems late in his career to counteract that. And the problem is that this will be mimicked, right? Oh, this will be yeah. copied That's by other teams. That is always the thing that happens with a, a good gimmick when someone comes up with it in baseball. It's the same pranks year after year. Someone uses Careless Whisper as their walk-up song. It's funny the first time, then it happens again and again and again, and it's a little less funny each time. So I like it. I like the originality. The next time it happens, I will be instantly sick of it. And I will yeah. say that Beltran's glove has been effectively dead for years. They, they could have <laughs> buried it in 2013 if they had wanted to, although it has lived on. But yeah, I, I thought this was this was funny, and Beltran took it well in a, a self-deprecating way. And this is the tail end of his career, and he suffered the indignity of the glove burying. And I I like it. So this seems like a a fun group of guys with the Astros. They're they're fun to watch. It seems 
seems as if they are fun to be around, although you have been around them more than I have. Yeah, I, I think they're looser this year than they were last year. I mean, like, obviously, it's easier to be loose when you're like 17 games <laughs> up in the division in July. Yeah. And, yeah. I, you know, I think there's a something to that. I will say I never thought that walking up to careless whisper was that funny to begin with because I'm a huge George Michael fan. And you know, I don't, it just felt like it, they were making fun of, of legitimately one of the greatest 20th century pop artists, uh, the, the English speaking world has ever seen. So, and, and Josh Reddick, who's on this Astros team was one of the, the guys yes. who the first guys to walk up to that. And, you know, I don't know if, if his love for George Michael or wham was so unironic that, that I'm willing to, to support that so okay well yeah. sorry if we touched a nerve there know, I'm, just, I'm a little defensive about george michael but no. <laughs> yeah i i you're you're exactly right a lot of times these baseball gimmicks are funny and then everybody does it and mm-hmm. yeah it's that brings me down a little bit actually because i was really enjoying this now i'm <laughs> well, thinking sorry. about like I, when, I didn't mean <laughs> to, to ruin your your buzz here after i came back to, to high school after a summer off and everybody was quoting napoleon dynamite and mm. this is yeah Of course, it's going to end up like that. (laughs) Well, enjoy it while it lasts. I'm sorry. So, some weeks we have to look for news. We have to make connections. Monday, we talked about a player who last played 90 years ago or so. But today, we are not having to do any digging. The topics are coming to us. This has been a very busy week in baseball. We've got two trades to talk about. We've got an injury to talk about. We have some other news that we want to at least touch on. And uh, do you have any theory about why the trade activity has ramped up so early? Because often I'll joke about how GMs just seem to be such procrastinators when it comes to the trade deadline and everything is unfolding in the final seconds before four o'clock or whatever time the deadline is that year. And there are real reasons why you would want to wait to know as much as possible before you make these momentous moves. But often it seems like they could have happened earlier and there are reasons why you would want to get the upgrades earlier too. So this year, I mean, it's a favor for us, for the people who have to cover and write and podcast about these things, because we're getting to spread the content out instead of having the crazy scramble on deadline day. But do you have any theories on why this market seems to be shaping up earlier than usual. I wonder I wonder if the Quintana trade sort of got that ball rolling cuz Theo Epstein's always sort of like to to make moves a little bit early even dating back to his days with the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. But even then that's just one guy and early for him often means just like 5 days ahead of the deadline instead of instead of day of. And yeah, I you know, I I wonder if there's something to like the the teams that are making these moves, like the the Yankees adding their package from Chicago, and and the Cubs and the Diamondbacks are sort of in the the thick of it right now. Where maybe they yeah. wonder if they'll if they wait two weeks to try to get the absolute best deal right at three o'clock on mm-hmm. July 31st, then you know maybe they cost themselves a game or two in the standings that they can't really afford to lose because the Diamondbacks are, are right in it with the Rockies right now, and they're sort yeah. of sliding back towards pack. And we've talked about the Cubs and the Yankees are in a crowded wild card slash division race too. So, you know, maybe the calculus has sort of shifted where you want to, once you know what your needs are sort of coming out of the all-star break, maybe it's better to just fix them 
faster instead of trying to instead of waiting and trying to fix them cheaper. But mm-hmm. other than that, I you know I don't know. I mean, and some of these like the Diamondbacks, it feels like got a really good deal on JD Martinez. So maybe yes, you know, don't try to push your luck. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that shortly. But I I think I'm with you on that. It must just be the jumble of teams in that AL wildcard race that's maybe increasing the urgency. The Cubs obviously were in that spot, and you can see them getting some benefit from that with Jose Quintana's brilliant first start for them, getting a few extra starts from him instead of whoever the alternative would have been could end up making the difference in a close race. Maybe there's concern that there just won't be that many sellers out there because, again, so many teams are in it or close enough to it that they can convince themselves that they're in it. So if one player is on the market and you're a buyer, you might be worried about missing out. So you just go all in and get the guy when you can. But whatever the reason, I'm grateful for it. It has made this week pretty entertaining. And maybe we can start with this latest White Sox trade with the Yankees, who acquired David Robertson, Todd Frazier, and Tommy Canely in exchange for Blake Rutherford, who is you know one of their top prospects, and also Tyler Clippard and a couple other lesser prospects. And obviously, there was uh, some spirited bidding going on on these guys. David Robertson had been linked to the Nationals forever. Todd Frazier had been linked to the Red Sox forever. And that might be part of what the Yankees were doing here. They get to keep a guy out of the Red Sox roster at the same time that they're adding. Obviously, they have needed a third baseman and Frazier might see some time there, might move to first and Headley might move to first too. He's maybe a better platoon candidate for them. So one way or another, they will cover the corners better than they have been thus far. And obviously, Robertson and and Canely, who was a no-name a few months ago and a guy that the Yankees actually just didn't protect and he was claimed from them in the Rule 5 draft a few years ago, he now, according to a, a quote I read citing an anonymous executive, may have been the most valuable player in this deal because of how effective he's been this year and because of his contract situation. So they lost Michael Pineda to Tommy John surgery. They have not yet added a starter, although they still certainly could do so. But in the meantime, upgrading your bullpen is one way to address the loss of a starter. And with Chapman and Batansis, despite the fact that those guys have had their issues this year, they have a really shut down pen now. I don't know if it's quite the equal of what it was last year when they had Miller too, but it's pretty close. Yeah, I think two, a couple of things stand out to me here. One is, like you said, that this is the, the Tommy Canely trade, which seems right. hilarious considering how, <laughs> you know, Frazier and Robertson are, are pretty big names. So they're sort of, mm-hmm. they're both sort of past their peak, but still really effective players. And I, th- you know, yep. Frazier, I almost feel like is a little underrated at this point in his career. And he's certainly very low risk considering he's a free agent at season's end. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the other thing is I saw Aroldis Chapman is something like fifth or sixth in the Yankees bullpen in strikeout rate right now. And, you know, he's having a little bit, he's only striking out about a third of batters right now, as opposed (laughs) to the 40 or only a third of, of yeah. Yeah. His contact rate is is way up this year. And Betances, of course, his walk rate is, I think, leading the league. So, well, so is a strikeout rate too, or at least it was a couple days ago. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a scary bullpen all of a sudden. And the, the rotation Tanaka's sort of struggle and now that Pineda's hurt, I don't know that they've got... They're going to be at a disadvantage against Dallas Keuchel or Chris Sale in game one of mm-hmm. whatever playoff series they face. But a couple years ago, 
I put it out there that they could go with like a three man playoff rotation and have their starter go only like three or four innings mm-hmm. per start. And that just once, maybe once and a half through the order, and then just go one shutdown reliever after another for the last six innings of the game. And they're back to a point where they, I mean, this is so crazy that no team would do this in the playoffs, certainly not the Yankees, but they could if they wanted to. Yeah. And I mean, in a wild card game, which is really the only scenario in which they would be in the playoffs, most likely, they certainly could do it. And they have not only the the four guys we've mentioned, but also Adam Warren, who can Mm -hmm. go multiple innings and has been very effective. They've got Jonathan Holder. They've got Chad Green, who's been great. Jason Shreve has even been good from the left side. So they have a, a multitude of options there. And it's sort of surprising, given their bullpen, that they have underplayed their expected record this year by quite a bit. Because yeah. in the Girardi era, they have tended to overplay their underlying stats, which could be because of the the great guys they've had in the back of the pen. And their record right now doesn't reflect their run differential, particularly over the last couple of months as they have struggled record wise. Yeah, and they you know they gave up Ian Clarkin, who is the guy they took one pick after Aaron Judge the year they had mm-hmm. uh, three first round picks. Isn't the prospect he once was, but Rutherford's you know he's a top one hundred guy, you know sort of middle of the top 100 guy and he'll fit in probably halfway through the White Sox top 10 depending on you know who's you know this is he was a first rounder last year there he's a guy who doesn't have a ton of plus tools but he's just gonna I mean he's gonna get to the big leagues he's gonna be a good defensive right fielder and he's just gonna hit you know he's Mm -hmm. not gonna hit 40 home runs but he's you know just gonna he sort of profiles as someone who's gonna grow into a pretty steady above average player and that's that's a lot to give up for a rental platoon corner infielder and two relief pitchers but that's I mean that's the cost of doing business right now and I I like that they filled so many needs with one trade and we're sort of Mm -hmm. seeing this And I'm going to write about this a little bit for Friday, but we're seeing teams instead of making several different trades, just sort of going out and just poaching all of of a selling team's assets all at once. And just, you know, and, you know, that might be a little bit more of an efficient way to do business because you can, you know, sort of smooth out stuff around the edges, the larger the trade is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And setting themselves up for future seasons Mm -hmm. in the process, because now the Yankees have Robertson for next year. They have Canely for a few years. Of course, his track record as an effective pitcher is pretty short, but the stuff has been there this year and certainly the strikeouts have. So I think you're right about that. And yeah, I mean, Rutherford is kind of a lot to give up. And he mentioned his prospect rankings. There's a a difference of opinion on where he slots in right now. MLB.com, I think, is the the high source on him, has him at number 30 overall. Mm -hmm. Some other sources don't have him in the top 50, but even MLB.com, which has him at number 30, has him as the sixth best White Sox prospect, which is just crazy that they could have six guys in the top 30. That is just an amazing assemblage of talent. Yeah. I mean, the, the Yankees are in a position where with because they have Clint Frazier and Aaron Judge where they can afford to sell on a, a young right. corner outfield prospect. But mm-hmm. I mean, this is what the fourth big trade the, the White Sox have made in the past nine months or so. And they were, you know, sort of a mid seventies win team. And none of these trades really seem like wild overpays. Maybe the Eaton trade, but that's sort of come 
back down to earth as we've realized that maybe Lucas Giolito isn't the prospect that he was, you know, his, his first couple seasons in the in professional baseball. And, you know, they've just completely restocked, like they've kept all their existing prospects. They haven't really graduated anybody. I mean, they just promoted Moncada and we'll talk about him mm-hmm. later in the show. But they've drafted well, they've developed well with a couple guys like Alec Hansen, and they've just gotten 10 better prospects than that, just on top of what was turning into a pretty decent farm system anyway. And it makes you think about, and this is another thing that's sort of been floating around, they were way more talented than they were playing. And it makes you think about what went wrong with the team over the past couple years, because there's really, just from a talent perspective, like they should have been a lot better than they were. And I think that Rick Hahn has gotten... He's gotten value for for every you know for sale and and Quintana and Eaton and now uh, this collection of, of three players he's traded to New York, but it's not he's not doing the Sam Hinkie fleecing the the Kings uh, deal every time out. Like this is mm-hmm. you know he traded away a lot of talent and in the process they also signed Louis Robert, I believe it's pronounced Robert by non Cubans according to him, which also enriched their system. So yeah, they were a strange combination of a team that was not really competitive, but also had these very valuable assets, in part because guys like Sale and Quintana were signed to very affordable contracts, which gave them a lot of surplus value that the White Sox are now cashing in on, whereas often when a team is kind of on its last legs and decides to sell, it doesn't have a whole lot left to deal that is attractive to teams. So they seem to have made the most of that. So last thing, I guess, on this trade is just that the Yankees in the process of making this move have kept Frazier away from the Red Sox, which is an added bonus. It's been a while since we saw the Yankees block the Red Sox or one of these teams block the other in the way that they have at times in the past. But that sweetens the deal a little bit for them. And I don't know if the White Sox are done now. They have a few spare parts. I don't know if they're talking about trading a Breu. Other than that, it's just kind of bullpen guys, back of the yeah. rotation types who might be moved. Yeah, if the, the Tigers didn't get anything significant for J.D. Martinez, it's hard to imagine the White Sox getting anything more than like a lottery ticket on Melky Cabrera. He was the other free mm-hmm. agent to be. I would have expected them to move. But I mean, this they're they're close to to done, if not done with. You know, yeah. And, you know, a lot of this talent. And this is the the interesting thing. This has always been one of the interesting things about this. Uh, the series of trades to me, it's not only the quality of prospect they've gotten back, but how close some of those guys have been to the majors. Mm-hmm. So. You know they could turn this thing around in another year or two, and they went from kind of a a team that I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to when Sale wasn't pitching for a couple years to maybe one of the most interesting teams from an off field perspective uh, in all of baseball. Mm-hmm. And I know it's probably bittersweet for some White Sox fans since each of these trades is kind of a, a capitulation in a sense, an acknowledgement that they can't win with the team as it was constructed. But I would be pretty excited if I were. A White Sox fan to see this influx of young players come in. Speaking of whom, Yohan Moncada, the product of the sale trade, of course, was up very briefly with Boston at the end of last year for a rushed promotion in which he looked somewhat overmatched, and understandably so. But now in his age 22 season, he has been playing for the White Sox in AAA. He hit 282, 377, 447 with 12 homers in 80 games and is now back up in the big leagues, seemingly to stay. 
And I know they, they've been pretty conservative with their prospects and they haven't really rushed guys. They have someone like Reynaldo Lopez, who's been pitching great in AAA, didn't come up to replace Quintana, for instance. But it seems as if Moncada was just propelled just by the sheer accumulation of prospects. Like their, their system can't hold all of these guys. So they just had to bring him up and he's played well enough to, to justify it. And I think, and he is playing at a higher level than he did last year in terms of designation, but also has held his own statistically. And his strikeout rate is still a little high, but lower than it was in in double A. And I know he was dealing with a bone bruise for a month or so and and played worse while he was, but obviously top prospect in baseball and now is in the big leagues. So that's sort of a a salve for any White Sox fans uh, who were sad to see these good players go. At least now they get a look at one of the best products of all of these trades as opposed to just saying these guys will be up in in three years or so. Yeah, I think the timing works from a PR perspective that trading off more guys, but look, here's the first of, of all the yeah. guys that we got back. And also, you know, just developmentally, Moncada's one of those guys who he still is going to need to learn and iron stuff out. Like there's some some players who just come up to the big leagues completely polished with nothing left to work on. And Moncada, you know, he's going to have some contact issues. He's going to have mm-hmm. some issues with strikeouts. So, you know, there's a certain extent to which he can't really figure that out against AAA pitching. You, you know, you just got to throw him in the deep end and eventually he'll learn how to, how to hit big league pitching. And there's only one place you can do that. And it's, you know, even if he fails in the short term, it's not like the White Sox have a lot to lose. Yeah. And in the wake of this call up, I've seen some spirited discussions about the best looking third baseman in Chicago. Do you have an opinion on this? Would you care to weigh in? Because these are uh, both good looking guys. Yeah. Mokata. You know, I was team Bryant for a long time. And then I realized that, you know, this is another thing that's been said. And I think it's, it's completely accurate. Chris Bryant depends a lot on whether or not he's wearing a hat. He really does. That that changes the answer completely. He's I think. got you know some of the nicest eyes in baseball, I think. But you know mm-hmm. the the his his hair is you know a little bit of back to the warning track, and you know spiking it straight up, you know sort yeah. of accentuates the big forehead, and you know I I think Mankata might be uh, might have the edge on him. Completely agree. Mankata off the field, Bryant on the field. I would say, although yeah. we know. Bryant dresses well and is uh, sponsored to dress well, so that's a point in his favor out of uniform. But I don't know. But I don't yeah. know if Express counts as dressing well for <laughs> on, a, on a big leaguer salary. Probably for us, but yeah, true, maybe not true. for them. It's all relative. Yeah, yeah. In civilian clothes, I'm I'm going Mankata for now. But controversial opinion. Speaking of which, we almost were worried that we would have to talk about Bryant today for different reasons because he slid head first and looked like he hurt himself. He was in extreme pain after bending back a finger on the slide, but x-rays negative day to day. And he is just out briefly with the most unmacho of injuries, a sprained pinky. But yeah, much better than it could have been. And this is, I mean, and Carlos Correa is now on the DL because he had a yeah. similar injury that he aggravated while swinging on Monday night. And, you know, mm-hmm. Mike Trout's just back from a torn ligament in his thumb and, you know, diving headfirst into, into bases is apparently really dangerous. Yeah. And every time it happens, uh, we see people saying, why don't players slide foot first? Why don't they learn? This is dangerous. And clearly it is. I think, you know, fingers are fragile. So there are 
reasons to learn to slide a different way. I think it's partly just that the habits get ingrained. And if you learn to slide head first coming up, it becomes an instinctive thing. And you don't really have time to plan out your slide dispassionately as you are trying to make this split second decision. And that's part of it. You don't want to temper a player's natural aggressiveness, et cetera. Certainly, if I were getting these players as raw products, I would try to teach them to slide foot first. Although, I, I wouldn't suppose, actually. Well, there's the benefit of the head first slide, right? Yeah. Which is that you can control your touching the bag more easily yeah. than you can with your feet. And and that matters more today because of replay right. reviews. Until and, they change the replay rules, I wouldn't yeah. teach players to, to slide feet first. Because in the same game that Correa went down, Josh Reddick got called out because, I mean, he beat a throw to third and his foot just bounced off the bag and Kyle Seeger kept the tag on him. Mm-hmm. And the Astros, it actually took a run off the board because Jose Altuve had scored earlier in the play and there were, that was a third out of the inning. And the Astros wind up losing in extra innings. So, you know, that's, I mean, not that that game matters, but because the Astros are 35 games up on on the AL West, but we've seen playoff series swung on somebody's foot coming off the bag for a split second. And there's not really a way that you can dig your foot into the bag the way you can hold onto it with your hand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd almost be willing to live with the occasional sprained finger, even if it is to somebody like Trout or Correa or Bryant, uh, then potentially lose a game on this absolute nonsense foot coming off the bag for a split (laughs) second. Like, I mean, I hate this rule. I know. (laughs) It's it, it. And we saw immediately what this would become and it's just you know you wouldn't play scrabble with people who challenge whether a foot you know your foot bounces off the bag for a second and yet this is how we're doing replay in major league baseball and i you know i'm sick of it yeah in the abstract i like it because i i don't like the idea that it just comes down to whether the ball beats you or not i think that's unfair if you have a really inventive slide and you manage to get your hand in there before you get tagged i think you should be recognized and rewarded for that but unfortunately yeah when you kind of take it to its its logical end or illogical end that we have ended up at you come to these plays where really a guy got in there but you know mm-hmm. momentum and physics did what they do and so the call goes the other way so that kind of backfires it's, on it's baseball. why I'd, i've been pushing for this subjective umpire bullshit not bullshit rule <laughs> right yes so that is the reason why i think you can't just say that everyone should stop sliding head first but i don't know where the cost benefit analysis is there because because when you do lose a guy like this for that amount of time, maybe you just decide which way you slide by how good you are. If you're if you're an expendable right. player, Albert Elmore <laughs> can slide head first, but Chris <laughs> Bryant can't. Right? Yeah. So so losing Korea, I mean, it hurts somewhat. It doesn't hurt in the I short term. It, it does hurt somewhat. Like yeah. Well, it depends. I mean, if he's back at full strength by the time yeah. the playoffs start, then the Astros should be unscathed here. And and if he comes back on the Mike Trout timeline then he should be back by the beginning of September or so and have time to get back up to full speed by October and that should all be fine. And I don't know if the the surgery and the rehab will go exactly as well as they went with Trout, but it seems that they have 
escaped any serious penalty here. It's it's sort of unfortunate because I was expecting, as we discussed, mm-hmm. Carlos Correa to be the best non-trout player maybe in baseball in the second half of the season. And there goes that prediction. Now the, the trout comparison is even more apt than you would exactly. realize. Right, exactly. And and the, the path to the MVP for trout, unlikely as it still is, probably is is more open than it was. And and the Astros had a shot at like a historic offensive performance this year. And so that is a little less likely here. But they have such a, a deep and well-rounded yeah. lineup that I you just won't even notice. I don't think that that the best player is missing for six weeks or so. Right. Odd as it is to to say, you know, you never would have imagined us saying this a couple years ago, but they don't lose a whole lot sticking Marwin Gonzalez in the lineup, either at <laughs> no, shortstop or too. moving Bregman over to, mm-hmm. to short. So, I mean, I wonder, I don't know if this would change anything if I were Jeff Lunau. I mean, I, it would, if I were Jeff Lunau, I would have traded for an established first baseman I don't know, six months ago. So if he hasn't done that yet, then maybe he's not going to do it ever. But it's amazing to me that they can lose a player this good for two, for up to two months. And I can't conceive of it making a huge difference in the standings. Right. Yeah. Okay. We have much more news to review, but we also have a couple sponsors to tell you about. So let's hear from them and we'll be right back with more. Support for today's show comes from Audible. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, including audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. And unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your books so you can access them anytime, anywhere, from almost any device, including your iPhone, iPad, Android, Amazon Fire Tablet, or Windows Phone. Plus, thanks to the Great Listen Guarantee, if you don't like your title, you can swap it for a new one. Michael and I have a Great Listen Guarantee, too. If you don't like one of our episodes, we'll be back with a new one in a few days. Not to mention, Audible Channels gives you a collection of exclusive originals, short stories, and comedy, so you always have something new to listen to. You can listen to Audible on your commute, at the gym, while running errands, perhaps even while working. We won't tell anyone. Anytime when your ears aren't already occupied. Want to know what I'm reading right now? The Benchley Roundup. It's a collection of essays by the American humorist Robert Benchley from the first half of last century. I don't know if that sounds interesting, but hey, truth in advertising. You can get a free audio audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash MLB. And here's how you can take advantage of Audible 2. You can get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash MLB. Again, that's www.audible.com slash MLB for a free audiobook with your 30-day trial. And I also want to tell you about Revent Optics. Do you have a pair of sunglasses with scratched lenses? You either threw them into a junk drawer or you're still wearing them, squinting through those scratches. Well, thanks to Revent Optics, you no longer have to live with those scratches or keep buying pair after pair of new sunglasses. Instead, you can save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with high-quality polarized, non-polarized, and prescription replacement lenses available for any brand on the market. Starting at just $24 a pair, Revent Optics lenses are a fraction of the price of brand-name sunglasses. And because they test their lenses, is to ensure razor-sharp clarity, they're a much better option than cheap gas station shades. Revent lenses are easy to install, guaranteed to fit, and backed by a one-year warranty. And if you can't find your sunglasses listed on their website, Revent Optics can cut custom lenses for you at their lab in Portland, Oregon. So join over 500,000 customers and try them risk-free with their 60-day money-back guarantee. Plus, enjoy free shipping and returns in the U.S. And get 20% off your first order when you use the offer code MLB. So go to reventoptics.com MLB. That's R-E-V. V-A-N-T-Optics.com slash MLB. RevantOptics.com. Replace your lenses, save your sunglasses. 
All right. Well, so let's talk about the other big acquisition here: the Diamondbacks acquiring JD Martinez from the Tigers for three prospects whom you have probably never heard of, or at least hadn't before a few days ago. I think obviously Martinez is great, and he's had some injury issues. He's had trouble playing full seasons, but when he has been in the lineup, he has been really one of the ten best hitters in baseball for for years now, and is in the midst of maybe the strongest offensive season yet. So that's a huge upgrade and coming in left field for the Diamondbacks, which has been a big weak spot. They were playing Tomas out there, then he got hurt, and then they're sticking Daniel Descalso in, in left field. And you never want to see that. And obviously, Martinez is not great on defense, but neither were the guys they were already running out there. So this is just a really big upgrade and it didn't cost them a whole lot. It didn't cost them a ranked prospect even within their own system, really. I don't think any of these guys was a top 10 in the Diamondback system entering the I year. I saw so the, that yeah. Brita was, was number four on MLB's list. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, it differs by source, but, yeah. but the consensus here is that I don't know whether you can say the Tigers got fleeced because I think we can talk about whether there was or would be a better offer out there, but certainly the Diamondbacks got a big upgrade without giving up a lot either yeah. in the long term or the short term. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to. If you're, I mean, you can talk about what a, a rental bat who's a black hole and a defensively in the corner outfield is is worth, but this is as good a rental bat as you're going to get in this yep. market. And they Diamondbacks don't have a great system. They've done a, a pretty good job of developing a couple college pitchers recently, but they didn't have to give up a whole lot of it to get. I mean, I I don't think there's going to be a better hitter who changes hands between now and the deadline. And they're no. you know they're far enough ahead of the wild card competition that. I think they were safe if they didn't get Martinez, but they were trending in the wrong direction. And I think that this might, this might at the very least make everybody feel better. And then, you know, having Martinez in that lineup is going to make him that much da more dangerous by the time the postseason comes around. Yeah. So the question is, why didn't Detroit get more? And this is a somewhat significant moment for Detroit because maybe this kind of officially marks the end of the Tigers contention period. We've been waiting for it to come for a while and they did not spend this past winter, but they didn't really sell either. Maybe not for lack of trying, but still they were giving it one more run and we've sort of seen this coming for years, but maybe this is the official start of the selling slash not really contending period, which could last a while because they have guys like Verlander and Cabrera signed to big deals and decreasing production for years to come and don't have much of a system. And so this could be them embarking on a rough patch, but they've had it good for quite a while. I know they never broke through and won that World Series, but they've been among the best teams in baseball for years. So this has to come eventually. And I don't know why they didn't get more. I think the options are a... There were some lower tier bats available. There are other outfielders out there, guys like Jay Bruce and, and people kind of the next tier down. And so maybe teams figured eh, if we don't get Martinez, we'll get one of these guys. It doesn't seem to be a case where, you know, occasionally you'll see a move made where it seems like the team was just hasty and other teams didn't even know that this guy was available. They didn't have a, a chance to submit their own offers. And then you can kind of question the timing of it. Doesn't seem like that's the case here, just because I think everyone knew that Martinez was available and there was 
ample opportunity for teams that wanted him to make a proposal. And I think if you kind of go team by team, as Dave Cameron did at Fangrass, there weren't that many perfect fits for Martinez among contenders, guys who teams who needed someone at that position. So that's probably part of it. All you can really question maybe is why make this move on July 18th? If that's all you can get, why not wait another 10 days and see if someone gets hurt and and you have a, a desperation last minute bitter or, or something else shakes loose? Because it's not as if the Diamondbacks wouldn't have wanted to make the same exchange 10 or 13 days later, I would think. Yeah. I think the puzzling thing about this for me is that they sort of made this underwhelming trade, like you said, a couple weeks out from the deadline. And this would have been a situation where you don't really know which direction, or well, you know which direction the team's going, but you're sort of hoping it won't happen now. Mm-hmm. And maybe somebody gets desperate in the the next two weeks and you maybe find a, another buyer to try to jack up the price. But, you know, Martinez was going to be a free agent after the season. And, you know, this is probably better than than a compensation pick, particularly under the, the new inscrutable uh, right. <laughs> qualifying offer rules. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this is just this is just the best offer that they could find. And, and they, you know. The Tigers front office would know better than better than we would what the the offers out there uh, look like, but it mm. is it does feel sort of underwhelming this far out from from the deadline. Yeah, and that impulse to to say what you just said that the front office knows better than we did. I think that's something that you hear a lot more from from people like us. I think, I think it's true now. No, uh, yeah, know, it's I, true I totally now in a way agree. that it wasn't fifteen years ago. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's definitely a, a marked change in the way that I think the game is covered, where we. Not to say that we just defer to authority in all cases and yeah. say that, oh, they, yeah, they always It feels kind of crappy to say that now, but yeah, you know, you but, but obviously we don't know what options were out there. And, and the difference is that I think we know that the people in charge of every team now are rational people exactly. <laughs> who are reading everything that is being written and, and know what we know, but also know more, which is what the actual offers have been or, or were likely to be. And in many cases, there are people working for these teams who used to be our coworkers. Or yeah. It's just it's hard to make that claim that these teams don't know what they're doing and they're making stupid decisions sometimes they still do you know and, and and sometimes you have ownership intervene and and they don't have the same background and and the same motivations that the baseball ops people might but i think you're right and often now i think we're looking for reasons why what a team does make sense rather mm-hmm. than before when we were looking for reasons why it, it didn't make sense so so that's the biggest i think the single biggest change in baseball now Analysis from when I even got into this and on sort of an amateur basis uh, about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think teams have earned the the benefit of the doubt now, and it's you know just the the change in the way they process information and you know really the professionalization of of the mm-hmm. decision making process has really changed. And it, that snark, that constant cynicism that was the hallmark of of the first sort of wave of sabermetrics is really obsolete now, and like you can tell. Like when when people are still operating in that mode, and it because it 
just the tone seems just so wildly out of whack with you know what the reality is, is shown to be because we you know i don't know in the past year year and a half that that i've been at the ringer i've written up a couple dozen trades and you know there's maybe one or two where i couldn't at least see why a team was doing it where you couldn't mm-hmm. at least make a make an argument you know the the default trade take is now well this makes sense for both sides and you know maybe right. it could have been better for one or one or another and you know you, but you yeah. can just pretty much rubber stamp that on 90 percent of the transactions yeah, right. And maybe as you spend more time doing this sort of thing, you learn some humility because of yeah. your own <laughs> mistakes, right? So certainly that's the case for the first wave of sabermetricians who were right about many things and influential, but also wrong about some things. And I mean, even if we talk about Tigers trades specifically, right? The the Doug Fister trade that mm-hmm. everyone went crazy about, and Robbie Ray was the centerpiece of that return for the Tigers. And of course, we know what has happened to Fister and Ray since then. Now, Tigers also gave up Ray not too yeah. long after that. Well, so that's, I mean, that's <laughs> I karmic know. payback for getting Max Scherzer from Arizona in a different trade. I'm pretty sure uh-huh. all of that's connected. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the point is that we all look at it and we say, "Oh, Fister is underrated, and he's been so great," and then. Fister just declines almost from that day forward, while Robbie Ray turns into a really valuable starting pitcher now, despite not having been a top prospect at the time. So you kind of learn that at times the the teams really do know something valuable that you don't. So anyway, I agree. It's made it a little less entertaining to cover trades when you can't just sort of throw up your hands and sigh and say, here goes Team X doing dumb Team X things again, mm-hmm. but it's maybe better for for the sport. I don't know. I don't know. There's usually one. Like it was the Phillies there for is, a while, right. and that's the thing. I I think this past winter was when when, when the Diamondbacks got, cleared house. Was that the last one? Diamondbacks and and Twins to a lesser extent, yeah. right? Because they maybe weren't as vocal about the confusing moves that they made, but they seemed to operate a little bit behind the pack. And yeah, not that that the playing field is is entirely level right now, because you have teams that got in on this and were early adopters more than a decade ago, and some that have gotten into it much more recently, but often even in the latter cases they're just importing people from those other teams and so everyone's sort of operating the same way but yeah i agree there's been this string of like single front offices that were kind of keeping the the old school way of operating alive and you'd have outspoken executives who would mm-hmm. say things that would you know give us a whole article just because it was so crazy and now we just don't get that anymore i wonder so. if the the mets are being saved by sandy alderson's name and the fact that everybody yeah. just blames ownership uh-huh. that, that could be <laughs> I don't know, if you if you squint hard enough and also like at a certain point that stopped being fun yeah. like mm-hmm. picking that low-hanging fruit like really stop being fun to write for me around the right you know the middle of when the diamondbacks were that team i think yeah because once it became clear which way things were going yeah. there wasn't a need to there wasn't an us versus them anymore it was or at least to the extent that there was the them was much smaller and less prominent and so you didn't feel as if there was some side that you really had to support so uh, a couple more things that we just wanted to mention before we wrap up 
The Orioles, it seems, are going to enter the market. There was some question about what Dan Duquette would be allowed to do because Peter Angelos doesn't like to sell. And it seems as if they're not fully selling. They're not going to be trading Adam Jones or Machado or or everyone on the roster. But Duquette reportedly, according to Ken Rosenthal's latest tweet slash Facebook update, Duquette has gotten approval to at least trade Seth Smith, who I'm a fan of, and some back of the bullpen guys, including Brad Brock and, and Zach Britton would be the big name, although obviously he hasn't pitched a whole lot this year. So we will most likely be seeing some Orioles moves be made. And if Britain is really available, that's going to be the the big bullpen move that could happen between now and the deadline. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about big bullpen moves. We saw that caliber of pitcher got traded twice last year and like with earth shaking results. So, yeah. you know, I, if there's a team out there that needs, you know, needs a Zach Britton and they, and they're convinced that he's the guy who was last year and the two or three years before that, then I mean, that, that could be the biggest move of the deadline. Yeah. Provided he is actually used in, in the wild card game. But, uh, oh. <laughs> but, but yes, he is. I mean, he's been back now since the start of the month almost and he's looked Zach Britton esque. So, yeah. and that, that whole back of the bullpen obviously has been, Great for them. So if they dismantle that, right. there there's will be three or four guys who could, yeah, you could bring back something if, significant. Yeah, I don't know if the the Nationals are. I don't know if the the relationship between the Nets and Orioles is in a place where they can. Make I heard moves. that was going to be a like. I heard that was going to be an issue. Like that yeah. seems like an obvious. They seem like obvious trade partners, but apparently right. they're so pissed at each other about Masson that yeah, like they they won't even pick up the phone. Yeah, that's a problem. And last thing, the Dodgers, who, by the way, are incredibly just blisteringly hot. They're 30 and four in their last 34 games entering Wednesday, which is the hottest stretch or winningest stretch of that span of games in 40 years. So they've they've had some very hot stretches in recent seasons, but none hotter than this. And I think that maybe that has some bearing on what they'll do at the deadline, which is maybe not much. And I think they got some of their deadline business out of the way over last winter. But I wanted to mention them just because of the discussion of the Dodger Stadium naming rights and the idea that they are now auctioning off not the name to the stadium, which will continue to be Dodger Stadium, but the name of the field. So they're going for one of those situations where it's corporate sponsor field at Dodger Stadium, that kind of thing. And Apparently, they are asking or, or potentially receiving twelve million dollars a year for this for this uh, naming privilege. And I'm all for free enterprise, but there are a few stadiums out there, some of which were originally corporate sponsors, but now have become part of history so much so that you don't even think of them that way anymore. But I think. Dodger Stadium is is one of those that you don't want to tamper with. And particularly if you're the Dodgers and you have seemingly all the money in the world and an incredibly valuable franchise already. I mean, look, if $12 million a year is just sitting there for the taking and all they need to do is slap some name on a marquee somewhere, then I can understand why you wouldn't want to pass that up. But at the same time, I don't want to have to say some brand name before Dodger Stadium. You don't have to say a brand name at Dodger Stadium. You can just keep calling it Dodger Stadium. I keep calling, you know, I call the Rangers ballpark the ball 
Central Park in Arlington still, you know? Yeah, right. That's true. I, I guess it's it's, it's an tough. optional. It's situation. tough with the with the stadiums. Like, you know, I was I was shirty about back when when I lived up there about trying to find another name other than Citizens Bank Park and like, mm-hmm. you know, Minute Maid Park was Enron Field before that, which is hilarious, <laughs> <Yes>. but you know, <laughs> still corporate sponsored. You know, some of these stadiums have just never had another name and it's sort of tough yeah. to, to be obnoxious about that. But, you know, you could keep calling Dodger Stadium unless whoever winds up buying the naming rights kicks some back to you, in which case, you know, I'm all for getting kickbacks from stadium sponsors in, sure. in order to use their uh, their preferred branding. You know, I don't I don't know why the team and the the rights holders are, are beholden to you know, whatever advertising deals, but you know, the media and the fans aren't. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's always a question of like, well, do you want to be accurate? Like, is there a a level at, if you're in the media and you're calling a ballpark by its old name, like that could be something that, you know, our, our copy editors, our fact checkers will be like, well, it's actually not named that anymore. (laughs) So I I can understand that too. I I don't think our copy desk can be any more pissed at me than they are already. (laughs) So this is just sort of, you know, it's it's a sunk cost anyway. Yeah. All right. So Dodger Stadium now and forever. Hopefully it won't be something obnoxious like guaranteed yeah. rate in front of Dodger Stadium. Yeah, I'm I'm all for it, particularly if it's something hilarious. Yeah, sure. But at the same time, I feel like this is sort of a like this is a battle that I cared a lot about. Another one that I cared a lot about like 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, mm-hmm. we've just sort of lost this one. Yeah, right. It's a business. It's a profit-making enterprise. Mm-hmm. I understand. Maybe that'll drive that home. We'd all be better off if we understood that this was a, <laughs> you know, okay, I'm not going <laughs> to not gonna Are do you? that again. I've done this like three times already this season. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll have another opportunity, I'm sure. So, last thought, I saw, a, a, I guess it's a, a notification from ESPN about the Yankees White Sox trade being a blockbuster. And uh, there's some discussion going on in the uh, Effectively Wild Facebook group right now about what constitutes a blockbuster, where the threshold for a blockbuster is. So do you want to weigh in on that as we approach the trade deadline? What is the proper nomenclature for a trade of that caliber? That's a great question. It's the Yankees trade isn't a blockbuster. I feel, you know, no, it's the Tommy see, Canely trade and nobody knew who Tommy Canely was four months ago. So that, yeah, you know, that's mean, not a there's definitely a temptation to say blockbuster when you have many players moving. But I, I think about that. What was it, the the Blue Jays and Astros like? Yeah. In the right. throes of that like 11 player trade where the biggest name dealt was like Asher Wojciechowski or something. <laughs> right. Um yeah, you need a, a serious headliner, and I'm not sure that Canely Robertson or Frazier yeah. meets that bar. I mean, look, you just, you had what four major leaguers changing teams in this trade. You had a, a significant top prospect, thirty or top yeah. fifty prospect, so I, it has a legitimate claim to the term. And obviously, it's it's the Yankees, and that amps up any trade, mm-hmm. but. I think this falls short of Blockbuster to me, just because we need to reserve Blockbuster for the true... I mean, like, is is the Quintana... I, I think That's, you need... That, I, I think, is a much more interesting debate, but I'm having yeah. a hard time frame... Like, this is a, an extremely subjective yes. term that you need, like, 
three or four other really subjective terms to define. Yeah. So, you know, like, do you, you know, you need an all-star and, you know, do you mean literally a guy who made an all-star team once or like a perennial mm. all-star or a current all-star is yeah. it that ephemeral all-star-ish? Cause you know, Quintana is a, has been a great pitcher over the mm-hmm. past five years, but I don't know how big a star he is. You know, no, is, is and, Eloy Jimenez a bigger name than, right. than Quintana in some circles? And if you're getting just one player back, even if it's mm-hmm. a really good player, does it require multiple players being involved? Because that, I think, is part of being a blockbuster to me, is that it just takes you a while to say who was traded. Like You can't yeah. just be like, this one guy was traded for this one other guy. I mean, if it's like a, a sale trade... The where sale it's trade like, is absolutely a blockbuster. Yeah, if it's like best pitcher in the yeah. league for best prospect in baseball... Even if that's like a one for one or something, I think yeah. that's a blockbuster. But and, but was yeah. the Eaton trade a blockbuster? Uh, well, then you had a couple top prospects and re- yeah, I mean Eaton's kind of in that Eaton's Quintana also, mode right, of good, but like, not necessarily good, but, famous. Yeah, exactly. So was the Chapman trade a blockbuster? Uh, I'm gonna say not blockbuster on this latest trade because okay. uh, we have to keep blockbuster special right? yeah definitely like we have to this, reserve this for just one or two moves a year can be a blockbuster the tommy canely trade is definitely not a blockbuster <laughs> no. but like you know there are half a dozen trades over the past 12 months that you know mm-hmm. i think you could have have a huge you know have have a debate on i think the the only slam dunk blockbuster unless i'm missing something is is uh the chris sale trade because that's yeah. the you know the top prospect in baseball for a top five starting pitcher right and that you know that's pretty easy but you know the chapman trade the miller trade you know a couple top 100 prospects involved in that one for a guy who yeah, maybe not at the time but looking back on it that probably looks like a bigger trade than it did at the time mm-hmm. i don't know These are the difficult decisions that we have to wrestle with as we cover this great sport. So maybe we'll have another opportunity to talk about blockbuster versus non-blockbuster in the coming days. But I think we have successfully touched on all the major news of the week. It took us up to the end of the episode because there's been a bunch of it. But wait, there's more. Just as we're about to sign off on this episode, some news came across the wire from our pal Jeff Passan, who is chasing Scoot as usual. Ben, hit the music! It's been so long! What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're gonna talk to Meg Rally about a trade or two. Is what did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're gonna talk to Meg Rally about a trade or two. Is what did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? Jeff Passan reports via a source, David Phelps to Seattle is at the finish line. Trade is imminent. By the time you're hearing this, it might be done. Our pal, Jerry DePoto, said he would leave no stone unturned in search of a pitcher at this deadline. And it seems like the stone that he has turned up was covering David Phelps, Marlins pitcher. So... 
David Phelps has been living under a rock. <laughs> Mariners and Marlins making moves, and we have a relevant anecdote here. Yeah, I found myself alone in an elevator with the muse, Cherry DePoto, this week. It was <laughs> a, kind of an awkward interaction, even by my standards. <laughs> so where was this? Was this in Houston? Yes, yeah, the ballpark? this is a Minute Maid Park. I was going okay. from the press box down to the clubhouses before Tuesday's game, and I see a familiar figure waiting for the elevator. So I you know, go up to him and say, Hi, Jerry, I'm Mike Bauman. You were on our podcast earlier this year. And, you know, it mm-hmm. seemed like he remembered me, or at least he was good enough. I feel like if you're a major league GM, you have to be good at telling people you, you know, remember right. them from one interaction. So, you uh-huh. know, he fooled me. Uh, and we ride down to the basement and, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about how suffocatingly humid it is in Houston, which is one of my favorite topics of conversation. <laughs> and uh, we get off the elevator and he goes towards the Seattle clubhouse and I go towards the Houston clubhouse and i'm like 80 percent sure he was whistling the song like i <laughs> i know he like he was definitely whistling something and it was close to that melody and i know he knows about the song yes so so he was not whistling in the elevator then he gets off the elevator and as he's walking away from you yes begins to whistle yes and can you convey what the whistling was like do you want to mimic the whistle i don't remember exactly i mean it was close to the what did jerry depoto do tune okay so you so you suspect that maybe he just no-sold this encounter, he played it cool, and then as he walked away, he just gave you a subtle sign that he knew. He knew the story. He knew the song. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, it's it's that kind of cool customer that, that really Definitely. gets ahead and you know winds up turning over rocks and coming home with David Phelps. <laughs> I love this encounter. I'm so glad that you two shared an elevator together. And I salute Jerry DePoto for that reference to the song, if that's in fact what it was. So this is the real ending of the podcast. So we'll be back with our regular episode on Monday. You've been listening to The Ringer MLP Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network. Talk to you then, Michael. And we didn't even have time to talk about the College of Charleston head coaching search, which just got into really bizarre territory. All right. Our time is up. (laughs) Start the music. (laughs) 